Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. We got it? We good? Good morning. How are you guys today? Good to see you again. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. Happy Labor Day weekend for those of you that are all here. I know a lot of people are, are gone, my family included. They're, they're not even here this morning. They... Go ahead and left when I preach. That's wise for them to do that. Um, I, I, Labor Day is not my favorite. Labor Day is not my favorite. Here's, here's why I really don't like Labor Day. Because 22 years ago, 22 years ago, I was a freshman student at the University of Arizona in Tucson. We got any Wildcats? No. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, good. So I, I go down to Tucson. And that year, the way the academic calendar was set was there was a full week of school. And then Labor Day was the next weekend for a lot of times it happens. And so I drove down to Tucson, got all set up. I'm in my dorm, had my first week of classes. And I decide I'm going to come back up to Phoenix for Labor Day weekend to visit my friends and family and hang out for the weekend. So I drive the two hours back up to 10 and I get in here. I drive to my house. I'm excited to be home. I walk into my bedroom and it's an exercise room. <laughs> like treadmill, like my stepmom had painted the walls, like no furniture. I was like, oh, it's good to be home. It's good to be home. They're just waiting for me to leave to transform my bedroom into, so it's, I don't really like Labor Day very much because that's what I think of. I think of Labor Day weekend, but um, let's, let's trust that God's going to redeem it even, even this morning. Um, would you pray with me that God would meet us in our text this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. God, thanks for giving us your word, your truth. I pray you would supernaturally illuminate the text to our hearts and minds. God, speak to us. Would you change us? Would you form us as only you can? We trust you for that, God. I pray you would do it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, let me give us some lanes that we're going to run down as we round out the end of Ephesians. We're going to talk about the context of Ephesians, the broader context of the whole letter of Ephesians, because some of you are new. And then we're going to talk specifically about the context we find ourselves in this morning at the end of chapter 5. So we're going to talk about context. Then we're going to review the role of the wife because Sean unpacked verses 22, 23, and 24 last week. And those verses are tethered together. They're hinged on the verses we're walking into in 25. So we're going to give some context where we're going to review the role of the wife. And then we're going to unpack the role of the husband as the text does this morning for us. And then ultimately what the back 
end of the text does is it reveals the ultimate role of marriage. So we're going to give some context. We're going to review the role of the wife. We're going to unpack the role of the husband. And then we're going to reveal the ultimate role of marriage. So again, some of you are new to Redemption Peoria. Some of you are college students and you were gone for a good chunk of Ephesians. Let's just be reminded collectively about this letter that this man named Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, this book of Ephesians. And it really breaks down quite nicely, actually. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are kind of in one section. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 are kind of in another. The beginning of the book, Paul talks about this gospel story, what the gospel is. And in the midst of that, we going? We're good, Mark? Okay. I don't know if something's wrong with my mic. Okay. Is everybody here okay out there? We good? Yes. Okay. I'll keep going. So this first half of Ephesians, chapters one, two, and three, Paul unlays the gospel story, who we are in Jesus. And then the back half of the book, chapters four, five, and six, talk about what we're supposed to do With that, what does it look like to live out the truth of the gospel? In chapter 1, Paul gives this beautiful language and poetry of who we are in Christ, that we've been adopted, we've been saved, we're predestined for him. And then in chapter 2 breaks down actually quite nice as well, because in the beginning of chapter 2, it talks about our individual relationship with Jesus. We've been separated from him and that we've come to know him by grace you have been saved through faith so there's an individual response to the gospel that we see at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 but it doesn't end there the second half of chapter 2 is about our communal response it's not just about me and Jesus it's about how we treat other people when we're trying to love God So there were these two groups of people specifically that Paul was writing to, the Jewish people, the people of God, the people of the Old Testament, and then the Gentile people, which is anybody that wasn't Jewish. And what was happening because of Jesus is that these two groups that were really opposed to each other, they were different ethnically, they were different culturally, and because of the cross, Jesus is blending a new family together called the church. And so he talks about, we just read that he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility of these cultures through the cross that we're meant to come together. So to love God is to love my neighbor that doesn't look like me necessarily. So he's given us this instruction. Because of this, he says, listen, I need to pray for you. And we move into chapter 3 where Paul goes on this kind of side tangent and he talks about this mystery has been revealed. This thing that God has shown us that the Gentiles were originally meant to be a part of this blended family all together. And then he says, if you're going to work this out, if you're going to love each other in the midst of your differences, you're going to need power. You're going to need my power to do it. And so he has this beautiful prayer that he unlays in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, that they would know the, the breadth and the depth and the length and the height of Christ, that they would know him, that they would be powered, empowered by his spirit. And then he turns the corner in chapter 4, and he starts getting really, really, really practical. He says, this is how you live it out. This is what you do. Let me remind you, we are one body We're together in this thing in the midst of your differences culturally. And then he gives all this language of put off the old man and put on the new man. And then he gives examples of that. He talks about anger. He talks about 
stealing. He talks about generosity. He's saying, this is the way you used to live. Don't live this in a way anymore, but because of what Jesus has done, now live this way. This is what it looks like to love each other in the midst of this new community. And in chapter 5, he starts saying, be imitators of God. You were once in darkness, now you're in light. And then this is where we pick up off the heels of chapter 5, verse 15. If you have a Bible, look down at it. This is going to give us our direct context for this morning. It says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we have to understand that's what Paul is answering as he starts to go into these different examples of what that looks like to submit to one another in reverence for Christ as you are filled with the Spirit. And Sean addressed the single folks in the room last week, which I thought was wise, and I'd like to double down on that because we're specifically talking about marriage. But he addressed the single people and tried to help them understand, listen, um, Don't just check out of what Paul is trying to say here because you're not married. Like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Because the crazy thing is that Paul is single, for those of you who don't know. He's a single guy writing on marriage, the illustration of marriage and how we're supposed to treat each other in marriage. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul specifically talks about it's actually better for him to be married because his time is not divided. For ministry, it's better for him. So single people, don't ever feel like you're not good enough for the kingdom. Like your time is not divided like my time is divided. You can disciple people. You can pour into people. There's so much you can do for the kingdom. And Sean mentioned last week that sometimes in churches, specifically in American churches, we kind of elevate marriage like it's this higher status. And that's just not what we see in the Bible. It's not true. Jesus was a single man when he walked on the earth. And so if God has you in a season of singleness or he calls you to a season of singleness, you're not less than you can be massively impactful for the kingdom. You need to hear that. But we are in Ephesians. And Paul is talking about marriage. He's specifically addressing the house codes and the cultural norms of what marriage is at the time. And he's saying, we we can look at marriage and it can can actually point us to the gospel. That's what he's doing in this text. So verses 22, 23, and 24, if you're looking at your Bible, we talked about them last week, Sean did. He taught how those verses point directly to the divine created order, that God created a system of how things were to operate. And if they operate correctly, that wives are to submit to their husbands. And we talked about that God made male and female. He makes male and female equal in value. They're equal in value, but they're different in their role. And when it comes to the marriage covenant, Sean unpacked last week as the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, 
God will hold the man accountable for how he leads his wife. That is the correct role in the divine order. Now, it doesn't mean that the wife is not responsible for her actions. It does not mean that the wife cannot be a leader. My wife is a very strong leader, and she leads very strongly in certain areas of our marriage. It doesn't mean that if you're a wife, you have to blindly do whatever your husband says. That's not what it means, and that's what we talked about last week. But it means ultimately, ultimately the man is responsible, held accountable for the marriage. And Sean talked about that last week as we looked at Genesis and what happens. And God directly engages Adam for what happens with Adam and Eve. He's, Adam is held responsible for that union. And so the wife's role, as Sean mentioned last week, is to lovingly submit to her husband. And again, this word submit, if you weren't here last week, it carries such baggage with it in our culture. Specifically with this verse. But it's really the idea of um, yielding your power to another, to come underneath the authority of somebody else. That's what this word means in the original text. And again, this scripture has been abused for centuries, and it seems like the number one way to me that it's been abused in our American context is it's primarily been misused because we're obsessed with questions about power and rights. We are obsessed in our American culture with questions of power and rights, which are not kingdom-shaped questions. And because of that, we get into arguments about who has the privilege and who has the power, rather than who has the responsibility to serve. We learned last week that the role of the wife what the role of the wife is in marriage. Now let's look at the role of the husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When I really started walking with Jesus in college... I got introduced to this discipline of scripture memory and meditation on the text. And so early on, there were a group of men, and we would meet together, and there were certain Bible verses that we would go over every week, and we'd talk about what they mean and how they're hitting our heart, and then we would memorize them, and then the next week we would come back, and we would say, okay, did you memorize it? What's the text? And we would recite it for each other for accountability. This is a very dangerous thing to do. If you like comfort, because what starts to happen is that word starts getting hidden in your heart and it sits there. And this passage was one of the first ones I remember us reading and memorizing together. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when my wife and I had our first son, our first child, you just, you learn to live exhausted. You're just tired all the time. You're walking out of service because you got a baby crying. Like it's, you're just like, and our son was a pretty good sleeper. He was, he was a fairly good baby, but like he's, he's waking up all times of the night in the middle of the night. And, and so what I started to do was engage in this game called baby chicken. Now, 
what this means is, you know, the game chicken, right? Like if you're going one way and they're coming at you and the first one to, it's chicken, right? And they lose. And so it would be the middle of the night and I would be laying in bed, just sleeping, probably dreaming something really wonderful. And I would hear, I'd hear the cry start to happen. And so I would start to play chicken because I know she hears it. I know she hears it. And I'm just pretending to be asleep, right? Whoever, whoever gets out of bed first loses. And, and so that's what I would start to do as I hear my son crying from the other room. And then you know what would happen? You know what the Holy Spirit would just, he would just, just, hey, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I was like, oh, no, I, I want to keep sleeping. You know, husbands, love your wife. You don't have an option, John, is what, is what the Spirit was saying. Like, get up out of bed and go serve your wife and go take care of your child. Now, often I just would disobey and I just would, I would continue to sleep. And, um, and I was just ignoring the prompting of the Spirit and His Word inside of me. And I'm just like, oh, there's not much I can do anyway. I'd rationalize. I don't have the right equipment. You know, whatever. <laughs> like, the best ever was when I'd go, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. And, I'd, I'd get, and then she'd get up. And I was like, yes. It's like, it's like a win-win. Um, but because of the fall... Because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, relationships, including the marriage relationships, are fractured. They're broken. They do not function as they were originally created to function. And so husbands, we cannot, in our natural state, we cannot, in our natural state, love our wives as Christ loved the church. We can't do it. That's not possible. Because of brokenness. Husbands, you can't love your wife as Christ loved the church unless, unless you are constantly being filled with the Spirit. And that's the context of our passage. This is what, that's why we read the context at the beginning. This is what it hangs on in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 when Paul says, look, this is how you walk as wise and not unwise. You actually, you don't get drunk with wine as he uses as an illustration there, but he actually says you're filled with the spirit. That's how you love each other. And so not only is Paul giving us the power source of husbands, how to love your wives to be filled with the spirit, but then this is beautiful. It's what he does on the back end of our passage. He provides us with the model to look at, which is Jesus and his church. He gives us the example of power to be filled with the spirit. And he gives us the example of Jesus and his church of what it actually looks like. Because one of the last things we want you to do, husbands, is leave here feeling like you need to pull up your bootstraps and will yourself to love your wife. That will not work. It might, it might work for a little season. It might, it might, it might work for a little bit, but it, it, it ultimately won't work. That's not what Paul is describing here. Instead of operating in your own power to love and to submit to one another in reverence for Christ, we need to constantly be filled with the Spirit because loving people is hard. And loving your spouse is hard sometimes. We need God's Spirit to fill us so we can be poured out. And here's the best thing I can think of to illustrate this. I don't know, I'm going to show this video. Myrna, you can play that. I don't know if you guys have seen 
these apparatuses at water parks. Have you seen these things, right? Or splash pads. It's, it's basically a constant flow of water that goes into some bucket or something at the top. And then when it gets full enough, the gravity tips it and it comes splashing down onto everybody. Right? Husbands, to love your wives is to get a constant filling of the Spirit, being powered by the Spirit so that you can love your wife well. If you're not getting poured into... You're just going to dump an empty bucket out and dump an empty bucket out and dump an empty bucket out. And you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get mad. You're going to start playing the 50-50 game with each other. And that's not what Paul is saying to do. Be filled with the Spirit so that you can love your wife as Christ loved the church. Jesus models this beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 3 through 8, and we, we had this read at our wedding. It's been my constant prayer in our 18 years of marriage that this would be reflective of my actions as a husband, as Jesus talk, is, is talked about in Philippians. Let's read it. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Husbands, in humility count your wife more significant than yourself. Verse 4, let each of you not only look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold the power. He didn't wield the power. Instead, what did he do? Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in a human form, he humbled himself to being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're not being constantly filled with the Spirit, you do not have a shot of doing this. And it's the same for wives. If you want to submit to your husbands, as it says in verse 22, you do not have a shot unless you're being filled with God's spirit. So if being filled with the spirit is the key that unlocks wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives. How do we become filled with the spirit? Let me just give you two just real quick things to help you because if you're new to this conversation in Christianity, you might hear, well, what does that look like to have that water poured into me so I can pour out? Two essential things that you need to be filled with the Spirit. And for some of you, this is really obvious. For some of you, this might be brand new. You need to have a committed life to Jesus. You need to be regenerate. You need to bow your knee to Jesus and know that there is a massive chasm between you and God. And there's nothing you can do in your life to get to God, to do the enough right things to get to God. It's only through Jesus and what he's done on the cross. And so accepting that truth and becoming a Christian is essential. If you don't take that step, you're not going to be filled. You will not have access to the power. Second way that's essential in the midst of being filled in the Spirit is prayer. To be filled in the Spirit is really just asking God to change you moment by moment, step by step. God, I can't, I'm, I'm so tired. I can't get up and take care of my kid or I don't want, like, would you empower me? Would you fill me to love my wife as you love the church? And you gave, could, you, could you do that for me? It's a constant, no, I cannot in my flesh, in my own power, but God, yes, you can. Would you change me? Would you fill me? Would you empower me? You have to have that constant rhythm of prayer 
all the time. Because otherwise, you just your default is to operate in your own power. And so to be filled, we need to be committed to Jesus, and we need to be a people of prayer. Around that, I think that's really helpful supplements to be continually filled with the Spirit. There's two other things that I think are massively helpful for us if we're trying to do this well, husbands or wives. The first is, man, we need to read our Bibles, men and women. Listen, not because it's a moral checklist, not because it's the right thing you do to earn favor with God, but because it's God's word. It's so rich. It's so beautiful. And it will form and change you. And I'm not talking about just reading it when it's convenient or when you have extra time. You need to be intentional to sit down at the feet of Jesus and open up his word. Let it soak into your soul. Are you doing that? Listen, I know the Bible is tricky. I know because of culture and because of reading it and it can feel boring. Like, sit down and ask God to give you eyes to see it. Spirit, would you change me? Would you help me? I don't feel like reading this morning. Would you open my eyes to your word? And then you need to spend time reading it, listening to it, memorizing it, soaking in it. It will change you. It really will. So we need to have a healthy form of Bible intake. And we see this in Jesus, even as he is tempted right before his public ministry. And right after his, he, he gets baptized, he goes for 40 days. He goes to solitude in the desert. And the enemy, the adversary, comes and whispers in his ear truths that are twisted to become lies. And what does Jesus do every time in response? Quote scripture. Deuteronomy three times back to this adversary. And we'll find out in Ephesians 6 in a couple of weeks, like this is our only offensive weapon in this battle. You better know your Bible. Let's be people that read our Bible. That'll be massively helpful to help you learn what it looks like to walk in the spirit. The other thing, we need to be in community. We need to be around other people that love Jesus. And we see Jesus in perfect communion with the Father, Son, and the Spirit all the time. And then he leaves that place and he goes and he lives among people. We need to be around people that love Jesus, will encourage us in walking in the Spirit. If we're going to have any chance, husbands, if we have any chance to love our wives, we have to be in continual surrender to God's spirit. And again, in this text, Paul is specifically addressing the the house codes or the cultural norms of what marriage is and what marriage was ultimately meant to point to. And the way Paul uses the next three examples from Ephesians 5, 22, all the way to Ephesians 6, 9, he uses husbands and wives, children's and parents, we'll get into next week, and then workers and bosses. And as he uses these examples, they would have been shocking to the culture he was writing to. Ephesians 5.22 probably would not have been shocking. Wives, submit to your husbands. But when he gets to 25 and he says, love, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that would make no sense in his context. It's because there were people of power in his context. Men had the authority. There was no mandate to sacrificially love your wife if you were a man with power. You only did it when it was convenient for you. So the idea of someone laying down their power for somebody underneath them was unheard of. It didn't make any sense. And that's what Paul 
is suggesting to his audience. So as we look at the last verses, 26 through 33, what is Paul saying marriage is supposed to be like? I think Paul is using this as an example of marriage being like a window. Like when you think about a window, what does a window do? It allows you to see in, it allows you to see through to something greater. It's a frame for your eyes to move towards. And Paul is saying this, this marriage, as you look at how this marriage operates in beautiful harmony, it should be a window to point you to something deeper. And that deeper thing is Jesus and his church. And if we're to understand this, metaphor that Paul is using, we need to understand what the meaning of church is. And because Paul uses this word church four times in the next eight verses, he uses the word church. So we need to have a grasp on this idea that the church is the bride of Christ as he uses this illustration. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means this gathering of citizens called out of their homes into some public space, an assembly, specifically an assembly for Christians gathered together for worship and religious meeting. Now catch this, this word in its original language, it's rooted in plurality. You get that? Don't miss that. Church, it's rooted in plurality. It's not just me and Jesus and my iPod. Look, this is being around people collectively together. It's a calling out of a common group, meeting and learning about Jesus. This is the context of the word church. And what I want to do is give this illustration of a wedding of a groom and a bride and Jesus and his church. Because now he is shifting the metaphor. So single people, you are a part of the church in this illustration. Think again about what Paul is saying of a groom and a wife. And I'm going to kind of pepper through the rest of our verses as we use this illustration and tease it out as Paul is saying. Think about a wedding. A wedding starts with the groom waiting. He's pursued his bride and he has won her. Jesus is the ultimate pursuer. He has pursued his church at Calvary and he has won her. The bride is dressed in white, pure and spotless as she's presented to the groom. Verse 26 and 27. The church has been made pure and spotless to the father because of the work of Jesus on the cross. The groom and bride hold hands coming together. They make promises to have and hold for better or for worse, forsaking all others as long as they both shall live. And Jesus says to his church, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then the church's response is we promise to forsake all other gods. And the groom and the bride, they finish their vows and they seal them with promises of rings. And Jesus gives his church as a seal, the Holy Spirit, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. As they make their union official, this couple, they gain possession 
all the possessions of each other. Everything the groom has belongs to the bride. Everything the bride has belongs to the groom. Especially in this culture, the groom was called to take care of the bride, to nourish and cherish the bride, as we see in verse 29. And through the work of Jesus on the cross, the church has everything that belongs to Jesus. We have his spirit. We have his holiness. We have his righteousness. In turn, Jesus takes everything that belongs to the church. He takes all of our sin and all of our shame in this exchange. And later, the groom and the bride will express their physical union in the truest form of vulnerability, sharing everything with each other, an intimate union. In verse 31, I believe he's specific, Paul is specifically addressing this because the language he's using as the two become one flesh, it wasn't this casual. It, he was talking about consummation in the midst of the marriage. And he says, that's what this is. It is a profound mystery, but refers to Jesus and the church. How is the couple coming together in vulnerability in union on their wedding night like Jesus and the church? Jesus in the truest form of vulnerability, gives everything at the cross. Laid totally bare. His body is broken. His blood is shed. He's giving everything in vulnerability for his church, for his bride on the cross. And for us, the church, we have the opportunity to be fully vulnerable with Jesus. On your wedding night, you're fully vulnerable with your partner. As a church, we get to be fully vulnerable. It means we don't have to fake. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to perform. We can be totally a mess, and Jesus still accepts us. That is good news, people. We try to come in, and we try to put on a mask and fake and look a certain way, and Jesus says, stop. Be fully vulnerable. I love you. the end of the marriage ceremony, the bride even takes on the name of the groom and the two have become one. And so the church takes on the name of Jesus and we call ourselves Christians. Now the difference in this illustration between a groom and a bride is that they're going to make promises they're not going to keep. They're going to they're gonna try and keep them, but they're, they're not going to keep these promises. But with Jesus in his church, it's, it's not a contract. It's, it's a covenant. He makes promises that he will keep. Covenant is a massive piece of this. Because do you remember Genesis chapter 15? You guys remember the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15. There's a man named Abram before he gets his name changed to Abraham. And God says, I am going to make you a mighty nation. In Genesis chapter 12, God pursues and he calls out this man named Abram. In Genesis chapter 15, he says, you will be my people and through you I'll make a great nation. And God tells Abram to go and prepare a covenant ceremony. A covenant ceremony. Do you remember this scene? And so what was happening here in this culture at this time is there was something that you would do in this tradition. When people wanted to make a partnership with each other, they would cut up animals and they would place them on two sides of a line. And they would, they would walk from the back of that line. I would be here, and so whoever I'm making the partnership would be on the other end. And they would walk, and they would meet in the middle, in between the pieces of animals. And they would share their promises of covenant towards each other. Now, if you broke our covenant, 
The symbolism of the, the animals cut in half was I could basically do to you what we did to these animals because you broke our covenant. That was the historic symbolism of what it meant to be in a covenant. And do you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 17 or chapter 15 verse 17? Abram prepares the covenant ceremony with the pieces of the, uh, and, and the Lord puts Abram into a deep sleep. So Abram can't meet him in the middle. And what happens in verse 17, it says that God passes through the pieces. He walks all the way through. Do you get what's happening here? We cannot meet God halfway. We cannot meet him in the middle. It's not Jesus plus. It's only Jesus. It's only by grace that we get to go all the way through. Because what Jesus has done on the cross, we have relationship and covenant with him. And this is what this is saying. That is good news. We think marriage is often this 50-50 deal. Again, like when I was first married... Oh, it was a mess. And I, I started counting like the days I made the bed versus the days my wife made the bed. And I'm like, got this running catalog and list of like, well, I made it four times. She's only made it twice. Like, what, what's the deal? Like, are you going to keep up your end of the bargain or what? Like, um, I started doing this 50-50 thing in marriage, which is just not biblical because of what we just talked about and what we see Jesus do for his church. Husband, if you are loving your wife, as Christ loved the church, it's not 50-50. It's 100 to zero. That's it. That's it. And we can only do it in the power of the Spirit. And the idea of somebody laying down power again with their life for somebody under them was extremely countercultural. The culture would say, exercise your authority over the people. You have the power. You have the right. Exercise that. And the religious culture of Paul's day, as well as ours, tells you that you have to work to earn favor with God. Nothing is given, but that's not the message of Christianity. Instead of earning favor for God, we receive favor from him because of the great exchange on the cross. And R.C. Sproul Jr. said it this way. He said, the first Adam said, don't blame me, blame my wife in Genesis 3. But the second Adam, referring to Jesus, said, don't blame my wife, blame me. He takes all my sin. He takes all my shame, all my failure. And in exchange, as he takes that, he gives me his righteousness. Christ assumes full responsibility as the perfect husband. He lays down his life for his bride, the church. And as husbands, this is what we're called to do for our wives. As the spirit fills and empowers us, may it be true. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the reminder of your word, God. Calling us to love other people, to lay down our lives for the good of others. Thank you for this context, specifically for husbands and wives. Help us do that well. We so need you, Jesus, in the midst of trying to work this out. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would we not walk in our own power and the power of our flesh, but would we constantly be in prayer that you would change us and form us and shape us? We need you to do that. We love you. 
And we pray this in your name. Amen.